Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast. Here on CBS Sports, that's Tom Fernelli, that's Bud Elliott, I'm Chip Patterson, coming to you live at youtube.com slash cover3 here Thursday, 11 a.m. Thanks to all of you that are joining. If you are listening to this after the fact in the audio format or watching along on YouTube, thank you very much. We will be tackling questions from the big old bag of mail. And the way that you can get in a mailbag question is to leave us a five-star review. And in that review, uh, put your question. We will add it to the big old bag of mail and tackle it in a future mail bag episode uh, before we get into that i do want to hit on one a news story a little bit of an interesting um development uh, especially as it pertains to the big 10 as it pertains to the college football playoff expansion and the way that the big 10 individually and maybe college football at large goes through the scheduling process so uh gary barta the athletic director for iowa had a conversation with the athletic in which he indicated that there are conversations relating to changing the big 10 schedule beyond 2022 that would include number one the potential reduction of a game a conference game so they would go from a nine game conference schedule to an eight game conference schedule and number two this would be eliminating divisions um the East has dominated the relationship between the East and the West. And as we look to the 24-7 sports composite recruiting rankings, um, the division of East and West kind of almost looks like the daggum standings when you sort them all uh, by how they are in the recruiting rankings. So, you know, there could be some um, balance of power that could change from the divisions. There are um, angles to this in terms of non-conference scheduling, the relationship with the ACC and the Pac-12 and the Alliance, uh, all at all at hand right now. Tom, congratulations on the Chicago Bears getting a new head coach. Uh, we'll check in with our resident Big Ten expert first. What do you, what are you making of some of this movement that we're getting from the uh, the conference? It's I first of all I I'm kind of torn because as an Illinois person, the Big Ten West is good. <laughs> like when you're in the Big Ten West and you're not, you know, it's like. No, it's nice. I love divisions. It's a little bit, you know, there, there's more hope. And if you get rid of divisions, I, you know, it kind of impacts your ability. It probably impacts your ceiling a little bit. But on the other side, just as a college football fan, I would be happy to get rid of the division. So I think that's probably a good thing in the long run, because I do think that, you know, you, like Bill Connolly's pod model that he's had for years and he's been touting for years is just pretty similar to what they're discussing or what the report was discussing in which the Big Ten teams would have their three permanent rivals that they play every year. And then whether it's eight or nine games, so five or six, just kind of rotating opponents. So that way you're playing the rest of the conference a lot more often than you would now because 
that's been one of the side effects of conference expansion, having so many teams. It's like you barely see any of these teams when they're not in your division anymore. It's like, you know, think about how many times Georgia and Alabama have met in the regular season compared to how many times they've met in the conference championship game. So I think for that aspect, it would be good. I'm not incredibly excited about going down to an eight-game conference schedule. I get that it makes more sense as far as balance of home and away and all that kind of stuff. And it also helps. It gives you another non-con opportunity to schedule the Pac-12 or, or the Big 12 or the ACC or whoever you want. And it'll also probably help more teams get to bowl games that way. But just as a fan, I have always preferred more conference games because that's another way to make sure that you're seeing your conference mates more often is playing more games against them. So frankly, in my ideal scenario, they would go to 10 conference games before they went to eight, but that's probably not going to happen. So I feel like it's a fair enough trade for me where I will take the eight game schedule if they get rid of divisions. And as long as there is some sort of agreement in there with the Alliance to schedule those kind of interesting non-conference matchups. So I, I have a couple thoughts on this one. I, I agree with a lot with, of what Tom is saying. Um, I would hate going to 10 conference games if we don't have playoff expansion, because I feel like it's sort of, it would sort of be uh, kind of like before we had interleague play in baseball, you know, and when you got to the postseason or you got to the all-star game, it was a cool opportunity to see the teams, that you don't see. From a power rating standpoint, I would absolutely hate the lack of connectivity between conferences. Oh, uh, yeah. If, if we were to go to 10 conference games, um, which I know isn't really on the table. I just, I, my, my brain just kind of went there as soon as he said that. Um, I, I think if, you know, when we had Matt Brown on the show, uh, he talked about the potential for a, not like a new power five only type thing, but maybe more of like an 80 team. FBS. Uh, if you did that and, and you were only playing those teams, I think eight plus four more legitimate non-conference games uh, or tougher non-conference games would be really interesting. But the main thing I think you accomplish with pods uh, is with an eye towards playoff expansion. And I think the one thing that they want to avoid is there's a very real possibility that we get AQ bids with a 12-team conference expansion plan, which probably won't happen until 2026 unless the ACC plays its leverage well and they get paid off earlier. Uh, but if you go to pods instead of divisions, you drastically increase the quality, most likely, of who is in the game every year. That way, you are very unlikely to have an eight and four type conference champion come out of nowhere. So it's, it, the playoff folks, there's no way in hell they're going to go for AQ bids, even though we love the, the drama of bid thieves on you know Selection Sunday. Uh, Saturday sometimes, um, but you, you guys see what I'm saying? Like they want to make sure that the quality of the the AQ, uh, the automatic qualifier AQ from whatever conference games you have uh, has a certain floor to it. And if you go to pods, which I love, I think divisions are stupid and they should go to pods immediately. And you, you're just kind of, you're going to guarantee a higher quality team gets an auto bid. Also there, most of these teams don't legitimately have four rivals. They probably have two real rivals, mm -hmm. one that they think is a rival and the other opponent's like, okay, fine, sure. And then one they think is a rival and the opponent's like, we're not a rival? Are you kidding me? Like, like there's no rivalry here. Um, in the SEC, that's typically, I think, Tennessee, right? They think that they're rivals with everybody. And they're like, eh. To be fair, the Big Ten does have trophies to show that there are many, many, many rivalries in that conference between those members. I, The normal fan's not going to, the normal fan is not going to go the extra step, I don't think, to actually like break down the pods. 
you know, you the pods would be something that's handled at the league office. It's something that right. if we're interested in. We uh, continue to break down and cycle it. It's in the same way that the uh, schedules, like the conference schedule in terms of the opponents that you play uh, in the ACC, it's built out to 2036. Like if you really care enough, you can go down and you can start pulling all this information. But I think for the normal fan, it's about looking at the standings and not seeing the divisions, but seeing it all right there. For the league, it is 100% about making sure that you get the highest quality of conference championship game. The Pac-12 had already discussed dropping from 9 to 8. Uh, the Pac-12 was already starting. George Klyovkov, you know, shortly after getting the job, he had already hinted at the idea of getting rid of divisions in order to uh, allow for a conference championship game that would not have the scenario where your second best team in the conference misses the conference championship game because it loses the division, but then the best team in your conference gets upset by a team to your point, bud, that's eight and four, got in with five and three and tiebreakers from the other division. Now all of a sudden you're left without a college football playoff team. I wanted to ask this because I haven't had a conversation, I haven't had a conversation about this with a coach in a couple of seasons, but what do you think there are coaches that I know like divisions? Is that for the familiarity? Is it the idea that, you know, planning and preparation allows you to, you know, keep your notebook together and have maybe a little bit of an edge? What do you think is the push for divisions? Because we've got a lot of reasons about why you should get rid of divisions and a lot of reasons why, whether it's giving fans more times to see opponents, or whether it's allowing your conference championship game to be better quality and your champion to be better quality. What, what are the pros for divisions? If, if you're a coach, I think you hit on the two bigger aspects of why they would prefer divisions because you know who you're playing every single year and you've got less new opponents to prepare for. Whereas while teams are changing on every single season, like if you're playing Mississippi State every single year and it's you've the got same your coach, book. Like yeah, this is the like, notebook that we break out for the Mississippi State week. Yeah, so like you're, you've got a lot to do in your job. You're pretty busy. There are a lot of things you have to do. So anything that you can find that kind of alleviates the schedule just a little bit is something you're going to prefer. Whereas if it's a rotating schedule every single season, that's different things you have to prepare for. That's more time that you have to spend doing it. So from that aspect, I think that's probably the biggest reason why any coach would prefer the divisions. Other than that, I don't know. Maybe some just don't like traveling as far and being in the divisions if they're geographical keeps them from having to travel too much. I, yeah, I, I would think so. And also, it's very self-interested. If you are in the Big Ten West, yeah. You probably love divisions. Yeah. You know who hates divisions? Mike Loxley and Greg yeah. Schiano. <laughs> like, if you throw the Rutgers and Maryland in the West, they're not laughing stocks, right? Like, they're, they've been just as good, if not better, than Illinois recently. I mean, in many years and, and Northwestern and, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, realistically, guys, I, it's interesting for me to think which teams will, will benefit from divisions and which teams will, will probably be hurt and how that changes how coaches view certain jobs you know if, if like mississippi state becomes a better job if their rotating opponents are like what old miss alabama because you'd probably have to give bama a break on somebody they play like you're not going to give bama you know auburn tennessee lsu i wouldn't think uh and then maybe arkansas or something like that that means i get to play east teams a lot more often that's great for me if i'm a mississippi state or a rutgers or you know, Maryland or um, if you're South Carolina, it probably becomes a harder job, which is crazy to think about or, or Vanderbilt. Right. I mean, imagine if Vanderbilt had to play a lot more West teams. 
I do think this is going to happen, though, because the ACC was pushing for, for pods for a while, and I don't think they got any real traction on it as far as long-term. They were allowed to have non-divisional play during the COVID year because they had Notre Dame and an unequal number of teams. But now you get the Big Ten floating this, and it's very clear the SEC is going to do this at some point because they're not going to have Texas and Oklahoma. Eight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that might not do this would be the Big 12, I guess. Which is already divisionless as it is. Yeah. But it will be division, it will have divisions most likely when they add the four teams. Ooh, and they'll have 12 at the very beginning for sure. Um, see, I think my problem here too is like who benefits from this? Well, the same teams that always benefit from it will benefit from it. The teams that are playoff teams or considered playoff contenders, those kind of teams will be the ones that benefit from it. And that is my concern with doing this. Like, again, the reason they're doing it is to position themselves better for the college football playoffs. So it's just like, we're going to let the tail keep wagging the dog. It's like, why don't you do what's best for your conference instead of what's best for the playoff? But whatever. <laughs> um, great comment from uh, Texas or Busted in the chat. He mentions that coaches, uh, one reason they might like it, hey, it's another banner, right? Like, if a division yeah. championship, yeah. you know, is There's something. Contractual that, incentives. Yeah, contractual incentives. And, and also just like as a motivating program building, you know, make, make it seem like just even getting to that conference championship game, you have won a championship to do so. Uh, one other thing before we hit the big old bag of mail. Chris Hummer on the show yesterday. If you have not listened to it, if you have not watched it, uh, he was able to break down a lot of the latest on the transfer portal. He is, for my money, now on top of this, the ins and outs, what's the latest on all these different players. I, I have enjoyed, as a fan and as somebody who has to translate some of that information to you here on this podcast on CBS Sports HQ and elsewhere, I, I think he's doing a terrific job. And he has logged a new crystal ball projection for one of the top quarterbacks available in the transfer portal and it's it's jackson dart it's but jackson dart you know very very high ceiling showed it when healthy showed flashes of what he could be uh ole miss byu oklahoma are some of those schools that are in the mix and this morning uh as we record here on thursday chris hummer filed a crystal ball prediction for uh, Jackson dart to go to ole miss he noted that he, oklahoma and byu are still pushing but, quote, uh, good shape is where Ole Miss is at right now. For Dart to Ole Miss, um, the the idea of playing quarterback for Lane Kiffin at Ole Miss is going to bring a lot of, like, sure, makes sense. Like, if I'm if I'm in Jackson Dart's camp, I'm like, that is one of the places that I have high on the list. Um, in, any thoughts if this does go down in terms of what Dart can accomplish with the Rebels and with Kiffin? And then, uh, again, like, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, does does this do anything for you in terms of the man who, as Hummer told us, can can literally just wait until the fall if he wanted to? Like if he just wanted to hang out and train in the D.C. area and kick it all summer, he probably could, and coaches would still be fine with it. But uh, clock's ticking. What do we make of Dart's uh, the potential of Dart to Ole Miss and uh, what it might mean for the Caleb Williams and the rest of the quarterbacks? Sixty-two percent passer. I mean. Two to one touchdown interception ratio. Those are those are fine numbers in a limited sample set. I, I think the the thing that gets people really excited about Dart is the physical ability is is really really good. Uh, you know, he got his chance when uh, uh, Keaton Slovis went down and shined pretty well for a true freshman. 
He was also one of those late risers in the rankings who had a really nice senior senior year statistically. And we do see that sometimes. These guys that maybe don't blow up till later in their high school career and then they, the light finally goes on. Sometimes that is an indication they may be able to outplay uh, their ranking. And certainly that's something with our rankings that we try to account for as best we can. So there's a lot of potential there. Uh, Lane Kiff, his offense sets up a bunch of just super easy throws that are going to juice your numbers to you know, sky high. I think they would have been good with Luke Altmaier, but Altmaier is also a guy physically, maybe he needs a little more time to develop. Uh, if you can keep him in the system, which I kind of doubt because Dart's a freshman. I mean, if he goes there, is Altmaier really going to sit there the same year? Um, probably not. But you know, this, this could create more dominance because Altmaier was certainly a player who uh, who a lot of programs wanted. Yeah, I mean, I I think if you're Ole Miss, I I don't know that Jackson Dart's as good as Matt Corral. Like Matt Corral is pretty good, probably not um, yet, right? Yeah, but I did I did like what I saw of Dart in his limited sample at USC, but. Maybe, you know, he'll be playing behind a better line and in a better offense, like design wise, now that he's at Ole Miss, which might help him and help his development. So if you're the Rebels and you're a Rebels fan, I think you got to feel pretty decent. I don't know if you're going to be ending up back at a Sugar Bowl next year, but I do think that Dart coming in definitely raises the floor. Like, I feel like Miss Ole Miss is like eight and four at worst with Jackson Dart. So it's still a pretty solid top 25-ish, can compete top 15, top 10, and maybe New Year's sixth birth if things go well. So it's a reason to be excited for sure. Uh, but again, as we've talked about, I'm, I'm just waiting on Caleb Williams. That's all I care about right now. It, it is very interesting. Uh, if Let's say that hypothetically, so Dart follows through, Hummer's correct on his crystal ball. I would not bet against Chris Hummer with his crystal balls for no, transfers, by the I way. Like, he's done a really good job on this. And has established himself as like the guy for the kind of crystal ball oracle, almost like Wilt Thong is on on the recruiting side. Um, so that kind of leaves USC currently as Caleb or bust quarterback wise. Mm-hmm. What if USC doesn't get Caleb Williams? What are they going to look like this spring? Right now, granted, somebody somebody will leave somebody their current school. Free. Somebody yeah. good will be like, wait a second, I get to go play with those weapons at that school for Lincoln Riley. Yeah, I'm there. So. I bet you there's a lot of schools out there that are rooting for Caleb to go to USC because if he doesn't, they have to be worried they're going to lose their quarterback to USC. Mm-hmm. What is that? Uh, I'm sorry to like spring this up. This is a really good thread. I'm glad you brought it up. I, I looked at it the other day. I feel like USC, if Caleb doesn't go and if Caleb maybe isn't in spring practice, we're only dealing with what, like two scholarship quarterbacks for spring practice? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think they got the true freshman enrolled, didn't they? I'm, I'm Trying to think here, who's actually on this? On this, well, you know, what? I can go to I can go to our USC twenty four seven sports page, uscfootball.com, and I can look at their scholarship matrix. It's a cool tool uh, that we have that I probably should just I had use Miller, as opposed I think, to guessing. I, think I, was, I had Miller Moss, and then I had like one other, either like walk on scholarship or or an early enrollee. As uh, and I was looking at it, and if I mean, what is Miller Moss's deal? Is Miller Moss going to be the starting quarterback for the Trojans at the start of the twenty twenty two season? Does he have a shot at that? No, I would be who will be. The prodigal son will return. Jackson Dart? JT Daniels oh, JT. will return to USC. <laughs> Almost broke my chair. <laughs> the circle will be complete. Yeah, I mean, like, does Slovis leave Pitt and come back? Does Jackson Dart double back and just leave Lane hanging? I, I, I would say of all those, whether it's JT Daniels, Keaton Slovis, or Jackson Dart, if Caleb Williams goes to Wisconsin or somewhere else, I would think that uh, JT Daniels to USC probably feels the most likely just because he's available, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but I think that there's, like Bud said, there's a QB we don't even know about yet who would probably this spring. Like, again, let's talk about that Ohio State QB room. Like, once mm-hmm. C.J. Stroud is named starter again after the spring, somebody in that room, if USC is open, might be looking over like, eh, I don't mind going back to California. What? What? Oh, here's one for you. Let's let's get real deep in this thing. Um, as Hummer speculated yesterday, one of the reasons Georgia is not going all in on Caleb Williams is because they're worried about guys clearing out of their room. Do you recall who was committed to Lincoln Riley at USC before flipping to Georgia? Because obviously everybody, I think eventually people realized that Caleb Williams was going to go uh, to Oklahoma. Vandegrift? Brock, Brock Vandegrift, yeah. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And isn't Vandegrift a Georgia boy? Isn't he from Georgia? Yeah. Oh, man. Want to go take your talents out west. Yeah, decommitted on January 1st of 2020, uh, committed to Oklahoma June 20th of 19. So I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm just trying to think like who would they go after? And I'm just trying to recall who they recruited in the same year uh, as Caleb. So what about uh, the loser of the Texas battle? You think Hudson card yeah. or, or Quinn Ewers? Are, well, I guess Quinn Ewers can't transfer again unless he somehow got a waiver. I don't know about, uh, but you can make a waiver. You can just, you know, Forfe- like do a forfeiture. It's true. And USC lot- can create a mini mester. A lot of these guys can get waivers. Uh, so the um, good the Antonio last- Brown's guy get a waiver made. Yeah, we're, we're any. It's a lot of people don't know this. Anybody can get a transfer waiver. You just have to go and print it out and fill mm-hmm. it out, mm-hmm. and you've made a waiver. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Now, if you do that, don't stiff the guy who makes it for you, and then acknowledge receipt of it over text message. Mm-hmm. That is legal advice. Or well, just common sense advice, I guess. No, no, no. We'll, we'll, you're the. It's just good business. That's all that is. Yeah. yeah. Um, that January twenty eighth is the last day of drop ad for USC. Last day of uh, drop ad for Wisconsin is February fourth. Today is January twenty seventh, and this is where we are. Dates are not real. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know you're. They're, you're, they're not real. I they're know not they're real. not real, but it. It feels as though it, it's important to keep in mind because I can't imagine that you're going to be able to get that super, super late enrollment and also the ability to practice for spring, right? Well, well, Mini-mester. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure how this would work, but like the dates aren't real. Like Wisconsin's a public school, so the date might be a little more real there than it is at USC, which is a private school and can just change its rules. Well, it's funny as I was digging for the Wisconsin information, again, something I was not expecting to do in this Caleb Williams scenario when it first broke. Uh, the hilarious part was like, okay, you can do February 4th, but it's going to be a $50 fee. You're going to be able to float that $50 fee, Caleb? <laughs> yeah. Um, Pretty sure Caleb's going to be okay with that one. So uh, I'm looking at the Hun School of Business at Princeton, and they have four reasons to take a mini-mester, the, the benefits of a mini-mester. Uh, Caleb, if he wants to take a mini-mester at USC, he could deeply focus on one topic, uh, Chip. It, that, that's a good reason. Discover the world with the traveling mini-mester. Maybe he takes a traveling mini-mester. It doesn't even get to USC until like March, right? Like he could take a Caleb Williams gap year. Let's go Caleb Williams gap year. Uh, he could receive mentorship and practice teamwork during his mini-mester. That's reason number three to get a mini-mester. Uh, and explore real-world issues and solutions, like how to get around hard deadlines. <laughs> I uh, Do they offer bowling? Didn't Matt Leinert take bowling at USC? <laughs> we had bowling at Florida State. Yeah. 
I, not I, as a minor, I don't think. But. I, I got that state school shutdown that you're hinting at when I tried to pitch a, an independent study to count for a high-level comm graduation credit, and they laughed my ass right out of the office and back into the fall semester for just one more credit. <laughs> Coming up on the other side, we dive into the big old bag of mail with a look into the future of the Big 12, what Jim Knowles might bring to the Ohio State defense, and more next Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast wherever you get your podcast. world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount+. Plus. Yes! A reminder, if you want to add a question to the big old bag of mail, you can do it by leaving us a five-star review. And in that review, put your question. Uh, this question comes from Nitro's nephew. Shout out to Nitro. You know. The American Gladiator Nitro? Oh, you know the Nitro we're talking about. We're talking about UCF's mascot. Oh, Ooh, okay. Damn. Listen, UCF's mascot at basketball games looks awesome because he wears wheelies on his tennis shoes. And so this big six-foot-nine inflatable knight, not inflatable knight, big uh, puffy knight with a sword, whatever. All right, uh, six-star podcast. The best, most comprehensive podcast out there for any college football fan. They got knowledge, insight, and plenty of humor coming from a fantastic four of college football dynamos. Great to hear from the ghost of Barton Simmons during the early signing period, too. Question. With four new schools joining the Big 12 in 2023, how long do you think one of them, if any, starts regularly competing for conference titles, and if so, which one? So to uh, before we dive into this, the four schools that are joining the Big 12 in 2023, UCF, I'm sure that our question questioner is uh, interested. I know about, what answer they want, yeah. <laughs> Cincinnati, Houston, and BYU. So how long will it take for one, if any, of those four schools uh, to be competing for Big 12 titles? I don't think it'll take that long. How was Honest. my my instant reaction was like I don't know 2023. Yeah, like I don't know that any of them are going to come in and be like the dominant team in the conference from the jump, but I think that they'll be in the hunt pretty much from right from right away. Like I don't see any of those programs being in a condition where they won't be ready to compete in the Big 12, especially because Texas and Oklahoma will be leaving the Big 12. So like the two big dark or one big dog and one little dog that barks loudly will be gone and you know so there's going to be that kind of power vacuum now i think that just familiarity with the landscape familiarity with the opponents kind of like we talked about earlier in the show with why coaches like divisions like everybody that's currently in the big 12 will have a better idea of how to play against the big 12 and what the rest of the teams are doing whereas all these four teams will be scouting new teams scouting new coaches scouting new tendencies so there's going to be an adjustment period 
But I don't think, like, if I'm a UCF fan, a Cincinnati fan, a BYU fan, or a Houston fan, I'm not sitting there worried that I'm going to show up in the Big 12 and be going fighting to get 6-6 six and six and 7-5 and five for a few years. I think you're going to be 8, 9, 10, 11 wins right away. As far as which ones are best poised, I don't know. If Luke Fickle's still at Cincinnati, I would lean there. If not, I would lean UCF. BYU, I think, will have a bit more of an adjustment period just because it's not used to being in a conference. But I don't think it's going to be have a real big problem with it. And Houston, Houston's basically a Big 12 team already. So that, That's exactly where my answer was going to start. Was let, Let's think about what games you are losing and what opponents you are adding. And for the three teams coming from the American Athletic Conference, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF, uh, you are trading out Temple, UCF, Navy, and like, yeah, Kansas is still there, but even just above that, when you have to start dealing with Texas Tech, a TCU, um, you know, West Virginia, the, that is a step up in competition. You are not going to have those weeks off, and I think you're really going to feel it. It's going to be more significant for BYU, who is going to be, you know, trading out your, you know, your Liberty, your New Mexico State, some of those other independent on independent games that fill out the schedule. And when you're trading that out, we're trading New Mexico State out for Texas Tech, then we're going to talk about. Um, I think a little bit more of an uphill climb of the Cincinnati, Houston, UCF. Give me Cincinnati or UCF, I think, as the the most likely. But my gut reaction to this was like, yes, there will be an adjustment. But if the new big dogs of the conference are going to be Oklahoma State, Baylor and Iowa State in the big picture, I don't think that UCF and Cincinnati are going to jump into that room and find themselves to be an underdog again, in the big picture, to the point where it's going to take two to three years to build up to the, the point of competition. I uh, I'm, I got to say, I'm really excited to watch the new league uh, from a close games perspective. Mm-hmm. If, if you power rate these teams, yeah. <laughs> the, the vast majority of them are not top 20 teams, but they're sort of like very squarely in that 20 to 45 range t- in a given year, with the exception uh, usually of, of Kansas. And sometimes Texas Tech drops down a little more in that 60 or 70 range, but the new league is going to have what 12 teams. I don't see any of them as consistent top 15 quality teams in the country, but somebody will probably emerge there every year. I highly doubt just based on their recruiting that it'll be a consistent team. Um, I mean, you're going to have a whole lot of, are they playing the eight game schedule or nine game schedule? Uh, yeah. They play nine now, but play I don't know nine. what they're going to do when they get to the twelve. I mean, you're going to have a boatload of five and four and four and five, and and you're probably going to have years where where the the two title teams are, you know, seven and two and six and three, just because I I don't see anybody dominating anybody else before consistent stretches here based on their recruiting prowess and and history. Yeah, that's I I think that's one thing you kind of touched on there too with the Big Twelve is I don't know how much of a power it's going to be nationally as far as the playoff is concerned, but I think just as a fan of college football, it could easily be the most entertaining Power Five conference on an annual basis, just because it might be the only conference where there's really not like the preseason. Okay, that team's going to win it. Yeah, which has been Oklahoma Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly over the last decade. Like there's going to be, it's going to be the one power five league with actual parity. Coaching then is where my mind goes. If we're just going to think that everything's going to be close games, who's, who's got the best coaching. If it, if, like you said, if Luke Fickle's still at Cincinnati, then probably, probably saying Cincinnati is the answer to this. But I mean, you're stepping in with by again, right now, and we're talking about 2023, but if the coaches were to stay in place, 
Mike Gundy, Dave Aranda, Matt Campbell. Yikes. It's tough. It's going to be a, a tough top tier to crack even after the exodus of Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC. We get this question every now and then, and uh, I try to be able to offer our, uh, our wonderful um, college football minds that I'm joined with the opportunity to, to give this answer because clearly the, the level of understanding with some of the verbiage we use is uh, all over the place. And we want to make sure that we speak to the audience uh, no matter where you're coming from with your love of college football. So this question comes from Jake. Great podcast. Love the insight and reasoning. Mailbag question. There are a variety of stats that each host mentions frequently on the show. Offensive, defensive, success rate, explosiveness, and more. Can y'all break these down as to what exactly they mean and what important factors go into them, as well as how they correlate to a team's success on the season? Well, uh, let's just go right to the definition of it. I mean, it's it's defined in the glossary uh, that Bill Connolly has. Um, obviously, he and Football Outsiders, and I, th- I think was it was it Aaron Schatz who who uh, who first started doing this officially? I think so. This is like old school blogosphere stuff. Yeah, uh, which we all kind of fit into. Um, yeah, I mean that's we're dusty too. <laughs> so the the official definition is uh, basically a play is defined as successful if it gains at least fifty percent of yards required to move the chains on first down. So. First and 10, if you get it to second and five or better, uh, 70% of yards on second down uh, or 100% of yards on third or fourth down. So basically, you know, if it's second and 10, you need to gain at least seven yards to be considered a successful play. Uh, or if it's third down, you need to gain 100% of yards to be considered a successful play. It It's a good measure um, of how consistent a team is being. Especially early in the season, I like to look at that more than explosiveness because I feel like explosiveness doesn't stabilize quite as quickly. The, mm-hmm. the way I really think of success rate is like how good are you? First of all, like how consistent can you be? But how good are you at staying in situations where the defense actually has to respect play action? You know, are are you staying in situation? And and granted, like a lot of coaches are coming around to this, but when this first came out, they're like, "Hey, man, three and a half yard run on first down is good." Is it? It's 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 kind of good if, if you're first and goal at the eight, potentially. But um, yeah, that that's kind of the definition and how I think it. Like, are you are you keep are you staying in a situation where the defense might have to respect the run so play action is feasibly better? Mm-hmm. And and the reason explosiveness matters is, and again, there are different ways to define an explosive play like they're depending on where you go some places have different i have my own different version of it that's not far off from like the sp plus kind of metric but it's slightly different but basically why it's important is like success rates great and you want to be successful and if you could be successful 100 percent of the time you'd never be stopped but you're not going to be successful 100 percent of the time so big explosive plays correlate to teams being able to score points because it keeps drives alive and it takes away a like if a 25 yard pass takes away a quarter of the field like if you've got to drive 75 yards for a score and you get one 25 yard play you've covered a third of the ground in only one play so it's just that kind of like you know like wherever you are on the field your chances of scoring increases or decreases explosive plays increase your chance of scoring they increase the odds your drive will be finished in the end zone so that's why success rate and explosive plays correlate well to winning so the 
do you find you each have your own success rate formula? Because I know that success rate goes into SP plus and is one of the major factors in it. And, you know, there are other efficiency uh, ratings as well that probably have some version of success rate, but do you, is there a place where you all are, are grabbing success rate and, and being able to identify some of these edges? Uh, my overall success rate is the standard. I have different ones inside the 40 and inside the 20. Yeah, so we're doing similar things there, essentially adjusting for field position. Um, I'll give away something here that I, I don't think it's really given away. I don't, I don't want to presuppose people haven't thought of this, but uh, I think certain field position uh, situations dictate that it is okay to throw behind the sticks or in front of the sticks, rather, uh, on third down. So I don't necessarily grade that as a negative um, as long as you're willing to use all four downs. You've got to go into it. Like if you, it might not be successful because you didn't gain all of the yards to gain, but if it was part of a game plan based on the your field position where you were then going to go get it in fourth, does it then trigger, like if you get the fourth down, then it becomes positive? Or if you fall short, is it then negative? Right, but it's team dependent based on willingness uh, to go forward on fourth downs. So for instance, I would not apply that to NC State, A&M, uh, some of these teams that play kind of crow magnum ball, right? Just, oh, we only get three downs. Like, they haven't realized there's a fourth that you can use. Uh, but for other teams, this is sort of – and Connolly's wrote about this, so I don't – I don't have like, I'm not giving away any of his secrets here. Uh, like, Army is never going to look okay in success rate. Yeah. Because they're, you're not dividing by three. You're sort of using a divider of four. Uh, so you have to kind of make an adjustment for some of these service academy teams if you believe that success rate is predictive – like you know what I'm saying? Like if you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next, you need to understand kind of how teams play. Who's a, I, I, who's a good team that has a good success rate, but it doesn't correlate as well. Like if in 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 NC my State. head, mm-hmm. okay, so NC State success rate is strong, but it, they had a lot of wins. I mean, this was a successful season. They did. They also had a very cushy schedule, and uh, like I, I was on them. I think we all took them over their win total. Six was a, was a ridiculous win total when, when that came out. Now some places have them eighth in their preseason poll. I'm like, they they could play like a top 10 team. In close games, will they coach in a smart enough fashion to use, all, like they actually use all the resources, like their downs that are given to them. And mm-hmm. that's like, it, it doesn't affect your season in a huge way, but in the close games, it does seem to matter a little more. Yeah, like if just going off this list right now, just there's some teams that you might be surprised to see, like top 10. Like if you look at number one in success rate on offense this year was Georgia. Then Cincinnati, Ohio State, Coastal, A&M, Louisiana, Air Force, Michigan, and Wisconsin. I think Wisconsin is something that would probably surprise some people, considering how stodgy and Cro-Magnon-ish their offense is, that they had such a high success rate, but that's kind of because what they do works. Marshall was a team that's tied with a few others there, and like just outside the top 10. There are some teams where you look that's kind of surprising that when you think of how you view their offense just based on results, you'd be surprised to see how successful they are. That Marshall offense led by now Virginia Tech quarterback Grant Wells. Mm-hmm. Hokies got themselves a new quarterback from the portal for Brent. And Vontech took, uh, took the OC from Georgia State, and they do a lot of really interesting QB run stuff. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that works out. Very interesting. All right. Well, thank you for uh, taking us to school right there. I know that I think that we end up somehow mentioning it once or twice every single year. But for those who are new listeners and we have 
seen the numbers. There are, there are a lot of new listeners that have jumped on board during this college football season, and we really appreciate all of you. So we want to uh, keep everybody up to speed so that when we're talking about success rate and explosiveness, you know where we are coming from. Uh, all right, let's take a look at the Big Ten. We were discussing the, the divisions earlier. This question comes from Santan Valley Buckeye. Love the show. The best national CFB pod out there. My mailbag question is, what are your thoughts on the impact that first-year defensive coordinator Jim Knowles will have on the Ohio State defense? Despite the schematic and execution struggles, the 2021 defense always felt like the parts were greater than the whole, especially with so many young players contributing. He mentions Sawyer, Burke, JTT. Uh, the floor for the 2022 defense can't be worse than 2021, but what is a realistic ceiling? Will it be enough to win the college football playoff? RIP Barton. Uh, I mean, I it's hard to know for sure, but just based on what Knowles was able to do at Oklahoma State with the talent level of player he had there, I think it's logical that when he improves his talent base as far as who he has on his defense, it's probably going to work out pretty well for Ohio State. And that has been the weakness of that team the last couple of years. Defensively, they just haven't been as good as they were in the years prior. Like, you know, they had the elite pass rush. They had like 75 first-round defensive backs on the team, and they were, you know, getting to the national title game, winning national title. So I, I think it's good. I think that it's probably going to work out pretty well. But like if Ohio State wins a national title, I don't think it's just going to be because of Jim Knowles. I think Ohio State's already capable of winning a national title. And had it not lost that game to Oregon this year with Kerry Combs calling plays early in the season, Ohio State might have won the national title this year. So if you want to look at it from that way, say Kerry Combs cost him a chance to do it this year. So if they win one next year, then it's definitely all thanks to getting rid of Combs, bringing him to Knowles. Sure. But Ohio State's already capable of winning a national title. So like, let, let's let's go back to what Chris Hummer said yesterday about how Ohio State didn't want to take Eli Ricks because they were worried about a lot of the young guys in that corner room who they really like transferring out. There's a couple things to take away from that. Obviously, roster management is very new in the portal era. I also took away that they like a lot of these guys in their secondary, talent-wise. Um, Knowles is a pretty proven quality defense coordinator, and he's not starting from a defense that ranked you know 100th last year. I think FPI, defensive efficiency, had him like 26th. Uh, SP Plus had him as the number 20 defense in the country. Um, they did a really good job of shutting down bad offenses and making them look bad. They just, at times, were you know struggling somewhat against some of the better offenses they, they faced, and there was a bit of like a covariance thing. They, they would you know hammer these really, really bad teams, but then not really stack up against some of the better teams. It, if they still have the number one offense in the country, and it'll be them or Bama, right? Unless I'm missing some real challenger maybe maybe texas if everything goes totally correct i guess usc sure yeah i guess usc could but they lose drake london right um uh if he if Knowles can get them to like i don't know the 12th defense lsu won with a historically great offense and defense i think was like 18th or 19th mm-hmm. and, um, and lsu's defense also got on a hot streak like it did i, I remember that was uh Big story, like that was my, you know, you, you go write a big story, you know. Like, 
okay, I guess I'm going to write about LSU's defense. But talking to Dave Aranda about it a while, he he mentioned that it was something where the team was getting healthier. Remember, Grant Delpit had a, some injuries. He was able to get back into the lineup. They were able to do some more things that uh, allowed them to be flexible, versatile. And we can see by the talent that's in the NFL now, it wasn't like they were short on dudes. The LSU example might actually be great. You need a hot defense. You need a defense that's going to start playing really well, um, you know, especially if you're going to talk about win the national championship, you need a defense that's going to be playing really well and have some health injury luck uh, in, in those key times of the year when you're playing Michigan, when you're playing the Big Ten championship game, and when you're playing the college football playoff. I, I, I think that Ohio State's defense can reach 12th, but I, I think that more than anything, we look at the LSU example and we say that Ohio State's defense has the dudes that if they all get it going in the right direction – uh, at the right time, then it's absolutely could be the the last piece of the puzzle to actually win in the natty, not just showing up in the playoff. The uh, the other thing in, in that game, uh, Chip, that I, I or excuse me for that LSU team. This is way off course, but I guess it's the off season, right? Um, the one game that I remember having to kind of manually adjust LSU stats for, like I went and bumped their defense, was Ole Miss, right? Because yeah. Ole Miss kept hitting explosive run plays. And it was very clear that LSU knew they would score every time, basically. And they scored 58 points on them, and had, it was 31-7 at one point. And LSU's defense is like, yeah, we're not really into stopping the run with a 24-point lead. And Ole Miss is like, Link Kiffin, to his credit, is like, well, we're going to hit explosive runs on you all the time, um, which is cool. Or was, was it Kiffin then? Or was, no, that was, uh, wasn't that the, the, the Rich that Rod? Yeah, yeah that, but Rich Rod, or was it? Pretty yeah, sure I, think it was, I think it was Rich Rod. Yeah. And so he was running this, you know, explosive QB run stuff with with, with John Reese Plumley and, and and hitting that on him. Um, to me, that was sort of like fakery. And this is why watching the game still matters too, right? The the stats are going to see that as, hey, this is not officially garbage time yet. And LSU's players and coaching staffs, like, yeah, it is, right? Like, you got to sometimes take out some of these things. That that's a wild tangent. Apologies. Well, Oklahoma, so the, to put a button on Knowles specifically, what, what did Oklahoma State do as well as about anybody in the country? It was getting the backfield. Number mm-hmm. two in the nation in sacks, number two in the nation in tackles for loss. They were tremendous. And while and that it, is something Ohio State has sorely lacked despite yes, its talent level. Yes, that is the one thing that, uh, that I think Ohio State fans would like to see again was the kind of, you know, terrorizing. Um, defensive front, and so that that's going to be one place where I would look at where you might you should you should see some uh, some instant impact. Uh, all right, from the coaching carousel, this question comes from Pat. What is Washington's ceiling under Kalen DeBoer? What do you think of the staff hires? Shepard feels like a nice get at receivers coach. I mean, it's hard to say, honestly. I, he did a good job at Fresno State, so that's intriguing and that's interesting, but it's really like we've seen when Chris Peterson's there, if they recruit well enough, Washington's got a pretty decent ceiling. It can get to the college football playoff. If things go right, it wins the division, but it's also happened at a time where USC was not USC. Oregon was in a bit of a little downturn itself, so... If I'm a Washington fan, I'm probably I, I like the hire, but I'm probably a little tepid. Like I'm not getting too gung ho about it. I think that there's a lot of work left to be done. If your goal is to be winning the Pac-12 and getting to the playoff, I don't think Washington is super close to that right now. I think it's going to be a few years before we should even consider that. I would just like to see improvement and a more enjoyable team to watch more than anything right now. <laughs> 
And for context here, uh, Jamarcus Shepard is the shepherd that was hired. He was the wide receivers coach at Purdue. Purdue's had some, you know, wide receivers have been pretty good for them. So uh, I would understand why a, fan, a Washington fan would be excited seeing that you're bringing in um, Jamarcus Shepard as, in, in terms of creating more explosive plays and being able to have difference makers and coach up difference makers on the perimeter. I understand why you're excited, but would you? Would I think that we all gave kind of a yeah, like thumbs up to Kalen DeBoer. It's very difficult to set specific expectations, but you know where are you at with a little bit of time to start thinking about the Huskies moving forward? Yeah, so you, you can recruit well at Washington. Um, you can recruit kind of at a top 20 level if, if you're doing doing the job. Maybe some years you can go you know, top 15-ish. Um, I think Jamarcus Shepard, well, first of all, I think DeBoer will score points. The, the guy is a very bright offensive mind and has scored points pretty much everywhere he's been. And when he has left places, a lot of times they have not scored as many points. So that's also a decent indicator that you know what you're doing. Um, I think if you, it, you know, at certain schools, it makes sense to go defensive coach. If they're a tremendous recruiter, it could be a great CEO, whatnot. But a lot of times like taking the, the destiny into your own hands and being the play caller and um, that I think probably helps. Uh, Jamarcus Shepard, I, I agree actually is a good hire. I, I know Jamarcus a little bit. Um, Purdue, I think he did a really nice job with their receivers. Um, obviously he got David Bell, so that was helpful, but they also had a lot of guys who were pr- pretty productive under his watch. He also w- was with Mike Leach for a year. Uh, Leach is a noted pretty good passing mind, and I think just getting to to work and be the passing game coordinator around Jeff Brom uh, helps as well. So they have a guy who, uh, I mean, granted, like I don't know how much, like he wasn't calling the plays, but just being around Brom that much probably can't hurt, and we know the guy's a, a good recruiter as well. So I would agree that's a, that's a fairly good hire for them. All right. And then uh, one final question. If you listen to us draft uh, top 25 teams at the beginning of the week, remember, and this is, I've actually gotten follow-ups to Monday's podcast during some radio hits this week. So clearly it's something that resonated. A lot of people enjoyed the show. Remember we were drafting teams at the end of the season. We're not talking about preseason hype. We're not trying to predict what all these uh, you know, AP voters and hype beasts are going to be doing in August. Hype we're trying beasts. to you know, we're trying to predict uh, the way it's going to go at the end of the year. Um, it also led to an interesting follow up question from the Coast Guard Bears. Hey guys, what team in the fantasy draft earned the most points but went undrafted, and what team draft what team was drafted and scored the least amount of points? Well. Uh, I'll, I'll list three teams for the most points who went undrafted. There were two tied for second with 25 points each. That was Oklahoma State and Pitt, neither of which mm-hmm. was drafted. Oklahoma State reached the Big 12 title game, went to the Fiesta Bowl. Pitt won the ACC, went to the Orange Bowl. Or not the Orange Bowl, the uh, sure. All right, Peach, Bowl. Peach Bowl. Yeah. And then, But the most points for an undrafted team was the team that Oklahoma State lost to in the Big 12 championship game. That would be Baylor, Baylor. who had 26 and won the Big 12, and that conference title is what edged them just past Oklahoma State. Uh, as for the teams that were drafted, the least points scored overall belonged to Danny, who took Indiana, which got him four points, two wins, Two covers. The Hoosiers were two and ten overall. Two and ten against the spread. Did not reach the postseason, so there are no bonus points. But since Danny's not here, I don't think it's fair to just dump on him. So I will list the other worst teams that any of us drafted. Chip, your worst team was TCU. It got you seven points. My worst team was USC. It got me eight points. 
Bud's team in the regular season was by far the most solid. Bud only lost because of what happened in the postseason. But Bud's worst scoring team was Marshall at 14. So Bud's worst team got twice the number of points that my worst team did. Mm-hmm. Mm. I had that floor. I just, uh, my, my team's in the postseason. Yeah, Bud was the SEC West. <laughs> it, it didn't win the title, but it was probably the best all season. Yeah, long. they were chant, chanting, the, <laughs> chanting the name at the end of it. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about this, by the way. It, would Pitt have been the, like, because we could only take one team from each conference. So we took four teams from the ACC. No, you could take wild cards. You could have taken more ACC teams. Oh, we could? Yeah, yeah. we had wild cards. What? Because uh, um, I didn't take anybody from more than one league. I took two Big Ten teams, Wisconsin and Penn State. I took two SEC teams, LSU and Ole Miss. Mm hmm. There was an opportunity. Yeah, it was five. You had to have a minimum of one from each power five. There were three group of fives, and then there were two wild cards or flex spots. Florida and Alabama for Tom. Yep. Okay. Did you really just spray the board? Well, you got Notre Dame in there, so that's already kind of a wild card-ish. Yeah. Um, I had one from the Big Ten, Iowa, uh, Nevada, Marshall, you know, I did well. I I I did pretty well with the G five picks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I just none of them cashed it in. Like I needed Marshall or Nevada or App to actually, you know, win or their Toledo college. or Toledo, right? But Toledo didn't make the title game. They um, did not make the title game. Um, but they at least were, uh, they were a top three or top four team in that in the MAC. It is funny, by the way. Like, so. In our next teams to make the playoff draft, I took both Michigan and Cincinnati, which like for, for the you know for the first time making the playoff. And Danny and I had the bet for Cincinnati playoff against Tom. Yet Tom drafted Cincinnati in our fantasy league <laughs> with a relatively high pick. It was, it was, it, it's wild. It's genius. It's I called. Didn't, I didn't take him for the playoff though. I took him because I was like, oh, they're going to win the American. Yeah, that's true. We, yeah, they were a lock, lockish, I guess. Hmm. One, yeah, I had one conference champion. Shout out to you, Utah. I will always, always appreciate what you did for, for me in the, the Cover 3 Fantasy League. We will be doing that activity again, but because it is more of a season preview activity, uh, we'll do it a little bit later on. If you would like at least our way too early thoughts on some of these teams without any of the, the roster complications of, of checking off uh, you know, the, the five uh, conferences, the G5, the wild cards. Uh, we did do that uh, top 25 team draft and we went all the way to 10 rounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the way to 10 rounds. So 40 teams discussed uh, on Monday's podcast. W- what was the one team that was not brought up much that we didn't even talk about in the after? I've got this answer here, but it was Iowa State. We didn't even mention Iowa State as like a snub. The <laughs> The one that that I think will prove to be the highest rated one uh, is Boise. Um, mm. Taking a look at Boise's schedule, I just I didn't grade this correctly. Like otherwise, I'm, I'm a hindsight, but I think I would have taken Boise. Uh, look at their 22 schedule. If they improve at all, which is possible because they have a second year coach, and you know after being very kind of same system for for a while, so they're at Oregon State. They are at UTEP uh, and they play BYU, but I mean, they'll be favored over over SDSU at home, 
favor over Utah State. They go to Nevada, but that's a major rebuild. New Mexico at Wyoming, probably a rebuild there. Colorado State at Air Force. I mean, there's a fairly decent chance of, of nine and three or ten and two. Um, also, had- like for the Iowa State thing, and <laughs> I don't think, think we hate Iowa State, but I would like to point yeah. out that Iowa State went six. I'd also like to point out that Iowa State has finished the season ranked in the AP poll twice since 2000. Once in 2000 and then in 2020. That's it. So I don't think we're being crazy by not drafting Iowa State. I think Do people really respond with Iowa State? Oh, in the, the chat. Iowa State fans oh. are convinced that you hate Iowa State. All why are they le- why do you think they're leveling up? The recruiting is not drastically improving. I mean, you you hit on a lot of guys I don't know, I'm going to crush some dreams right now. Boise your, State, go ahead. Your ability to drastically outplay your recruiting Just, ranking is almost never sustainable. You need to take the success you have on the field and translate that into better recruiting rankings. Those little magic, like we're better than recruiting rankings, pixie dust, is not as sustainable as fans of the teams that managed to do it in a limited sample think it is. It's not a real long-term strategy for the most part, especially not if you think you can level up to compete in the top 25 in that range. If you're if your goal is consistently go seven and five, make bowls, which is honestly, I think, what the goal should be at Iowa State, and they're gonna hate me more for saying that now, then yeah, you can keep doing it. But seven and five in the Big Twelve does not get you ranked. Um, to further your Boise State point in, in terms of you know what what we're looking at to flip from one year to the next, this is a Boise State team that defeated the eventual Mountain West champions, Utah State on the road, defeated BYU on the road, mm-hmm. defeated Fresno State, dominated 40-14, to 14, uh, and fell 11 points short at San Diego State at the end of the season from, I believe, finishing uh, as th- via tiebreakers, having a chance to play for the Mountain West Championship. There was a very complicated like three-way tie scenario that would have gotten them there, but it would be five straight wins to close the season if they were able to beat the Aztecs. Again, road win at Utah State, a one-point loss against Oklahoma State, road win at BYU. There was enough evidence in that Boise State season to suggest that flipping a 7-5 and five to 9-3 and three or 10-2 and two might not take that many different bounces. Also, keep in mind, uh, they are sort of the reverse Minnesota uh, 2019. So I always keep a Minnesota 2019 list, which is teams that played a whole lot of backup quarterbacks. Um because like that's not sustainable year to year, most likely. But they're sort of the reverse. Like teams who, who had to play uh, a lot of good quarterbacks who went on to miss time. Most notably, th- they had to face UCF with Gabriel, mm-hmm. and then he got hurt almost immediately thereafter against Louisville. Uh, so, you know, like they're they're getting dinged in the rating systems for losing to to UCF at full strength. The rating systems, most of them probably don't know that Gabriel went down and UCF ended up having a bad year. So. You know, and that was a five. That was, that was a bananas game too. Yeah, it was. Four hour lightning delay for the season opener. Was it Boise State got out to that huge lead, and then you end up having the uh, the comeback. It was a it's a crazy crazy game. You can jump in with a question for a future mailbag episode by leaving us a five-star review. Put your question in the review. We'll tackle it in a future episode of the mailbag. I mean, you see what time of year this is. 
We are going to have some National Signing Day coverage coming up next week. Make sure that you're subscribed to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash cover three. Smash that bell for notifications so that you know when we go live. So we're going to be getting you before National Signing Day, letting you know what some of the storylines to watch, some of the names, some of the teams as they are jockeying for the final positions in the 2022 rankings. Then on National Signing Day, uh, we will be coming to you with some Signing Day reaction and coverage. Again, subscribe to the YouTube YouTube channel smash the bell so that you get the notifications when we go live and that'll be the best way for you to be able to keep up with all the cover three signing day coverage you can follow him on twitter at tom fernelli you can follow him at bud elliott three you can follow me at chip underscore patterson gentlemen thank you very much bears are back <laughs>